Well, as you can see, we're back in Revelation chapter 5. And remember the last time we were in Revelation 5, we saw the transfer of that seven-sealed scroll. And it was transferred, of course, from the Heavenly Father to Jesus. And the symbolism there was, of course, Jesus is the one who's going to rule. Because of who he is and what he's done, he's the one who's worthy to open up the scroll, to break the seven seals, but he's also worthy, therefore, to rule after he pours his wrath out. Now, as we get into verses 11 through 14, what we're going to see is the angelic host give glory and praise and honor to Jesus. And this is very exciting. I think you're going to love this because here all of the angels are worshiping Christ. And I think that there's three big things that we learn from it. Number one, this section is really a segue into the wrath. And what I mean by that is Jesus is going to be worshipped and three times you're going to see a reference to his power, his might, and his strength. All right, those three things are going to be mentioned in this section. Why would that be important? Because Jesus has the power to bring righteousness to the planet. Not only is he a God who demands righteousness, but he's a God who's powerful enough to bring this righteous kingdom and to expel the usurper and the enemies from the earth. That's what he's going to be able to do for us. So that's number one. Number two, think about it. We're going to be worshiping Christ for how long? Forever. Now, that doesn't mean that that's all we're going to do. I think there'll be other things we'll be doing. But for all eternity, we will have routine and regular worship of God. And let's just think about it. If we worshiped him for two days in a row, we won't become tired. <laughs> it won't be that be great. I won't have to stop for a sandwich break. Well, that would be miraculous right there. So that'll be really nice. Uh, the third thing is we're going to learn about Christian doctrine. That is what I mean by Christian doctrine is precisely that the doctrine about Christ, who he is and what he's done. And so that's, I think, three reasons why this is an important section. So let's begin. We're going to see how the angelic host here, again, is praising Jesus in verse 11. And notice how John begins. He says, then I looked. Now, let me just stop there for just a moment. When you see, then I looked, or then I saw, that type of phrase occurs 47 times in the book of Revelation. So if you ever see, I looked or I saw, what John is showing you is a transition point. And so now he wants you to look at this new focus. He has a new focus or a new subject matter that he wants you to focus on. And here it's going to be the worship of Christ by the angel. So again, that functions 47 times, either I looked or then I saw. So he says, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now notice here we have the angels that are mentioned. Think of that as the broad category. And then you have subsets or subgroups which would be the living creatures and the elders. Those would be subcategories underneath the big category of angels. So think of it this way. A good analogy would be, think if you had cars, the cars that you and I drive in. Well, then living creatures would be like Lamborghinis, and the elders would be like Corvettes. They're cars, but they're elite ones. You see what I'm saying? That's what we have here. So the living creatures and elders are subsets of the many angels. All right? 
Now, remember we had mentioned that these elders were angels. And one of the proofs that they are angels and not men, that's kind of a big debate in Christendom. One of the reasons we know that is because the elders are mentioned with the angels. Okay, and so that alludes again to the fact that they're a subset. Now, another reason we know the elders are in fact angels and not men is we saw evidence of that last time in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. So here's a song that the living creatures and the 24 elders sang. Listen to what they sang. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, that would be to Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, verse 10, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, remember... In the box there, that pronoun, them, is very important. Third person plural, autus. And so here you see a distinction between the ones who are singing, the elders included, and the ones who are saved. So if you're singing a song and you're praising God for saving them, well, then you're not included. Are you with me? And so that shows then that the elders are indeed not part of the redeemed. But they're angels, and I'll show you on the next slide, angels long to look in to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Brian. I hear what you're saying, and I have one issue sure. with that. <clears throat> when you were in Revelation 5.11, many angels, living creatures, elders, and you were saying that the many angels would be the car, living creatures would be a Lamborghini, elders would be like a Corvette. Sure. Okay. The saints aren't the saints in in uh, eternity above the angels, isn't? And and then an elder in a hierarchy situation, an elder is above. See, so how could the saints be here and the? And the angels as elders be elevated above the saints. Follow my question? Sure. Okay. Uh, first of all, think about when Jesus in Hebrews, when he's humiliated, as it were. In other words, he humbles himself, and it says that he was made a little lower than the angels. Now, when he was made lower than the angels, what's inferred is he became a man in the incarnation. So think of it this way. We are God's vice regents, as Adam was saying. We're the ones who are to reign on the earth. We're to subdue it. And yet we sinned against God, right? And it seems that these angels, we know, have a different reason for existence. In other words, they're not going to subdue the earth. They're not to reign upon it. They're not to be God's vice regents. We are. So there's a different role. But as far as the order of creation, they came first. As far as the type of order... They seem to be a higher order. For instance, the writer of Hebrews says he was made lower than the angels. So, uh, and the other thing is, when you think about the idea that they're elders, remember we said that that really coincides very nicely to what we saw in the tabernacle, where he had the 24 priests who were functioning in the tabernacle or the temple. And what seems to be taking place is we have a copy then in the heavenly realm. And so my whole point is what I'm showing you here is that the angels, the creatures, and the elders... The reason they're lumped together is because they're all angels. You have the angels consisting of the living creatures, which are four, 
than the elders, which are 24. And so I think it makes much more sense. And I think the final thing is in verse 10, you can't argue with grammar. If these indeed were men and they were redeemed, they would have to say, you've made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And so it's very difficult to argue with the fact that they say, you made them. Grammar's, in this point, I think, king because it shows us they're not part of mankind. Does that help, Brian? It does. I'm a little confused on it, but that's okay. We can talk about it later. Okay. (laughs) Sounds good. We'll do that lunch. That's right. Okay, sounds good. All right, does anybody else have any? Yeah, Paul. I came in just a touch late, so maybe I missed the whole thing. You've already made this point. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, when I hear you speaking, it sounds as like you could almost write an organizational chart of this over that over this over that. And whenever I run across a Bible study, a study Bible or anything like that, that is so organized, I get a little uncomfortable with that yeah, slightly because I, I think predominant is the gospel. That's the predominant thing. Now, if yep. this augments that, which I have a feeling that's what you're going to show me in a yeah. few minutes, that, um, then that's great. I, I appreciate that. But I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, again, all I'm telling you is with the biblical data is we know that there's four living creatures, and we know that there's 24 elders because the Bible revealed that to us. And every time that they're listed, they're linked with the angels. And we know that the elders distinguish themselves from men. So if they're not men who were redeemed, well, then who are they? And I'm just surmising they must be angels. So I'm not trying to dig into anything that's forbidden or get into divination or into extrapolation. I'm just trying to say, look, that's what the biblical data seems to suggest. So, okay. Now, with that, notice how many of these rascals there are. There are a lot of angels. It says, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. The myriads is 10,000. comes from murias. So it's literally 10,000s of 10,000s. And then the term thousands, kilios, is where we get our term for millennium in Revelation 20. So the idea is that there's just this extraordinary number of angels. There are countless, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. In fact, the reference here probably is to Daniel 7.10. In fact, turn your Bibles to Daniel 7. Because I just want to show you where this happened earlier because these same themes come up again. Remember in Daniel 7 you had the prophet Daniel explaining this vision that Belshazzar was given. So what God did often in Daniel, he did this with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, is he would give a dream to the king, but only Daniel would be given the interpretation. And God was the one who revealed the mystery then through the prophet. And that's basically a theme that Bob is going to be explaining also um, in a book, or not a book, but an article that he's going to be writing about Remember the harbinger, the guy who wrote that, Jonathan Kahn? Well, Jonathan Kahn claims to be a prophet. Okay, why does he do that? Well, because he's revealing mysteries. All right, well, only prophets and apostles can reveal mysteries. All right, and we'll explain that in a minute. So Daniel is a prophet, and he reveals mysteries. So listen to what it says in Daniel 7, verse 10. He saw, he says, a river of fire flowing and coming out from before him. That would be for from before God's throne. Now, and here's the reference. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. So do you see now the same number of angels are really referenced, the thousands and thousands, and the murias, the murias, the myriads and myriads. And so it probably this links us back to Daniel chapter 7. So there's thousands of angels 
that are giving worship then to Jesus Christ. Now, one thing I want you to think about is if we think about angelology, I want you to think about the angels more than likely that are worshiping Christ are what we would refer to as the good angels. Now, we know when we're talking about Paul, Paul was just saying, hey, how do we know about these angels and demons? Well, we do know some things. For instance, in Revelation chapter 12, we know a third of the angels fell and were led by Satan into rebellion against God. We know that from Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. Okay, We also know that, I think, from the book of Isaiah. But a third of the angels fell. And then when you look at those angels, those are demons. Now, if you look at those demons, I think you have two subsets of demons. You have those who left their proper domain, and they end up going after women, right, in Genesis 6. In fact, who had uh, Jude 6? I have a reading on that. Norm has that. And so these are demons, then, that would be a subset of uh, the demons in general because they've been locked away. Okay, Jude 6. Yeah. And angels did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Yeah, so they didn't keep their proper abode. Does everybody hear that? So you have angels that left their proper abode. How did they do that? Well, they had relationships with women. And then what God did with them is he's kept them in this abode, in this place where they're locked away. Now, exactly where that is, we don't know. It's in the spiritual realm. But they're locked away. So now how, if if they're locked away, then how do you have demons then that possess people and affect people? When Jesus cast out demons, where did they come from? Well, obviously, not all demons, apparently, went after these women. And so not all of them were locked away. But the point is, one day, all of them will be thrown where? Into the lake of fire. So as we're reading about these myriads and myriads that are giving praise to Jesus, I think we have to assume it's the two-thirds, the angels that never fell. I think that's what we have to safely assume. By the way, turn your Bibles again. Oh, before I do that, you have one more passage, don't you? Here's another one. Everyone turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Again, so that's the same reference really that Jude has. Now notice the reference to hell there isn't Gehenna. It really is Tartarus. Yeah, Tartarus is a place that's probably this temporary holding tank that Jude 6 envisions. And so think of it. You have angels, two-thirds of them are forever going to be obedient to God. And I don't know why. They're just, they, there seems to be a deal where they don't ever fall away. Once they're secure, they're secure. And so you have two-thirds that are going to be obedient to God, and one-third fell. Well, out of that third that fell, you have a subgroup that are locked away in the abyss. And that Second Peter 2, 4 says the exact same thing that Jude 6 did. So you have two New Testament passages that are teaching that indeed these angels did go after women. And in fact, they were locked away in the abyss because of that. Okay, so they are not obviously giving worship to God. What's interesting in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 9, those demons that are locked away in the abyss, they're going to be let out. And I want you to think about why they would be let out. Who's left on the planet in Revelation chapter 9? Well, there's only unbelievers. Think about that great promise, Revelation 3.10. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, because you have been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world 
to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is used four times in the book of Revelation. Every single instance, it refers to only unbelievers. And so in Revelation 9, you have these demonic beings that are let out, and they're going to be affecting whom? Only unbelievers. Why? Because that's what the unbelievers wanted. God is giving them what they want. Okay? So we have to understand as Jesus is being praised, he's being praised by the angels that are subservient to him. Now, we come to this sevenfold doxology. Doxus is glory. Lagos, for all the G here, comes from a word. This is a word of glory that the angels in heaven give to Jesus. And one of the questions that I think that comes to our mind is, well, why would angels be the ones who are singing praises to Jesus? Perhaps that's a question that you may have had, Brian. Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians 3. I'll give you a couple passages here. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Now, remember in Ephesians 3, Paul has explained that God had revealed the gospel, this mysterion, to the prophets, and of course to him who was an apostle. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, it says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So let's stop there in verse 9. Notice he has been given to bring to light the administration of the mystery which had been hidden for all these ages. Now in the New Testament, this term mystery, mysterion, is something that was formerly concealed but is now revealed. But it's revealed through an apostle and a prophet. So, for example, Bob is going to be reviewing this Harbinger. Not the Harbinger, but it's a book by Jonathan Kahn. What's the name of the book? Shemitah. Shemitah. Thank you. I'm not going to have you say any more. We've got to save his voice for the sermon here. But the problem with Jonathan Kahn is even in his titles, like in the Harbinger, he claims to reveal mysteries about America. Now, what would be the problem with revealing mysteries? Well, here's three options for a mystery. Either God revealed the mystery through an apostle or prophet, or you get the mystery through divination, which is forbidden, or you're just guessing and you're basically lying. Okay? So, in order for Jonathan Kahn to reveal a mystery, he either has to claim to be an apostle or prophet, which we don't have any more of those, or he's engaged in divination, or he's lying. And maybe he's not lying, technically he doesn't know, but he's wrong. Okay, so those are the only three options that you have because God reveals mysteries through his apostles and his prophets. Ephesians 3, 5, Ephesians 3, 9. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's in Ephesians 2, 20. Okay, now Ephesians 3, 10. Notice he goes on to say, here's the purpose statement. Anytime you see a so that, or in order that, you have a purpose statement. It says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, so the church is the vehicle, to the rulers and the authorities in where? In the heavenly places. So one of the purposes that God had in revealing the gospel through his prophets and apostles was that so through the church, 
the angelic realm might see more of the majesty of God through the gospel. That's what Paul's claiming here in Ephesians 3.10. That's spectacular. The angels, therefore, are learning about the glory of God through his redemptive plan. And so as it's being unveiled through Paul, they're going to sing glory and honor and praise. So as you and I, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but as you and I are proclaiming the gospel and explaining, perhaps there are angels who are relishing in that and giving glory to Jesus. In fact, turn your Bible to another passage that alludes to this longing of angels to look at the gospel. Turn your Bible to 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. In the opening verses in 1 Peter, Peter had explained how salvation was all of God. God is the one who gave salvation. Well, now, when you get to 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, he says, as to this salvation. Well, what salvation? Well, the salvation that God alone dispenses. He says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So let's stop there. What he's claiming is that these prophets weren't just merely, well, I'm writing, but I have no idea what I'm writing. No, they were engaged cognitively in searches and inquiries. And I think that supports this idea that the prophets of old, yes, they're giving predictive prophecy, but it's even better than that. On top of predictive prophecy, they're teaching messianic doctrine because they're making careful searches and inquiries. Notice what it says, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ, that would be the Holy Spirit, within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they were wrestling these prophets in the Old Testament with teaching what? Messianic doctrine. Who is this Christ? What will he do? That's what they're teaching. So the people of God in the Old Testament were being taught by the prophets messianic doctrine. Also notice there, in verse 11, Peter gets his theology right. He talks about they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Remember when we had studied Mark chapter 8 and Jesus had just been confessed as the Christ by Peter? Remember Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Peter, for this is not revealed to you by flesh, but my father in heaven. Well, right after that, Jesus says he's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer. But on the 30, he's going to rise again. What happens? Well, Peter rebukes him. Peter says, there's no suffering for the Messiah. That was his theology. Well, now he gets it. No, the sufferings had to come first, then the glories were to follow. So now Peter has his doctrine down, obviously after Pentecost. Now, verse 12, he continues. He says, it was revealed to them, that is to these prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, that's new covenant believers, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the angels have a desire to see how it is that God did what he did with humanity. And so I, I just think about as we're proclaiming the gospel and teaching doctrine of Christ, how even the angels give him glory for that. So, my, the reason I say these passages beforehand is we see the angels singing the praises of Christ, realize that they are not themselves redeemed, but they are absolutely enthralled in giving glory to God and learning about the redemption that he alone can give. 
And it's a major reason why Christ is extolled is because of the salvation that he brings. So now here's what these angels say, Revelation 5.12. They were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice seven things are extolled here, attributes really of Christ. Seven of them, of course, indicating the idea of completion. We had Adam a few weeks ago talk about this idea of seven and how prominent it is, even in the creation, showing us that, yes, everything is complete in creation. Well, here you see the seven number come up again, showing us that they're giving complete adoration to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to go through each of these seven, but I want to just work on this idea of how these are arranged. There are seven praises that are given to Christ, and there's some debate Are all seven of these attributes just merely intrinsic to Christ or are the first four intrinsic to Christ and the last three where it says honor, glory, and blessing, are those things that you and I as human beings, uh, we're basically giving that to Christ. In other words, we honor him, we give him glory and blessing. And I don't think we have to choose, to be honest with you, between those two options. I think all seven of these are attributes that are intrinsic to who Christ is. He has all power, he has all riches, he has all wisdom, he has all might, honor, glory, and blessing. They all belong to him. Okay, But the last three, you and I in particular, are invited as believers to give back. In other words, we're to honor him, we're to, to give him glory, the weightiness that he deserves. We're to be a blessing to our God. Now, the first four, can we do anything to give God more power? No, not really. Can we do anything to give him more riches? Well, he owns it all. Can we do anything to give him more wisdom? Well, no, he doesn't have anything to learn from me. And can we give him any more might? No. No. So so it's the last three. So I think we have to see the seven together as they all belong to Christ intrinsically, but the last three we're invited to also share and to give him honor and glory and blessing. I think that's the way we should see it. Now, let's start with number one, the power Power comes from this term dunamis. And I don't really like to always get into etymology in English because sometimes it leads us astray, but it's a helpful memory aid here. We get our term dynamite from dunamis. And that'll help you remember that in Greek, dunamis remember, or reminds you of power, the idea of ability. Okay, so the idea here is Jesus has omnipotent power and ability. So think about it in terms, first of all, of salvation. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So in John 6, 44, no human being has the ability, the dunamis, to come to salvation. So in John 6, 44, God is the one who has the power and the ability to bring lost sinners to saving faith, doesn't he? All right? Now, there was a discussion some years ago I heard a man speaking once, and he was talking about power and authority. And I don't remember where it was, but I think he was speaking in one of these peacenik type of organizations where you should never have war. And what he was saying is, well, we can have authority without power. And he gave the example of a huge semi-truck coming down at a lonely police officer. And his idea was, think about this huge semi-truck. It has all this power, all this mass behind it, Well, then you have this lowly police officer who stands up in the middle of the street and he puts up his hand, he's directing traffic. And because he has authority, 
this huge semi stops. And the author was basically, or the speaker was saying, look, he exercised authority even though he didn't have all this power. And I right away wanted to throw a yellow flag like you have in football, you know, for holding or a penalty. Because here's what bothered me about that. Yes, it's true that this powerful semi stopped because this police officer had authority. But maybe the police or the uh, truck driver stopped because he was a decent human being. In other words, he knew that he was a man made in the image of God. I'm certainly not going to run him down. So maybe we had a redeemed truck driver, (laughs) right? And maybe that's why he didn't run over the police officer. But let's just take the worst case scenario. Let's say we had an evil truck driver. He still more than likely will not run down the police officer. Why? Because he knows when he does so, he's going to have more police officers with guns than he's ever seen in his wildest hallucinations come after him. And they're going to exercise power. And so the authority of that police officer is only as good as the power that backs it up. Isn't that right? Think about we saw in our, I think it was probably a few months ago, we had Boko Haram, this Islamic group in Africa. Remember they had kidnapped all these children? And what did the left launch into? A mighty hashtag assault. They were going to Twitter these terrorists into submission. Release our children now. Remember that? Did the children come home? No, because there was no power there. I don't say that gleefully. Now, the terrorists might have taken notice if the American 6th Fleet was parked off the coast because there's power. And so the reason I labor this point is Jesus has all power. And because he has all power, he has all authority. That's the answer to evil. If anyone ever says, well, what about the problem of evil? Jesus wipes it out. And he brings at the end of the day goodness. And one day when we're in heaven, we're going to say, boy, do you remember how bad it was? But look at what he's done. Why? Because our God, Jesus Christ, has all power. And that's why he has all authority and dominion. It's important here because when we get to Revelation 6, just in a few verses, he's going to be pouring out his wrath. And I'll show you that on the last slide. So his power is being extolled here by the angels because he's about to break forth his wrath which will lead him to reign. Now, let's turn our Bibles. I'll quit rambling about truck drivers and Boko Haram and all this stuff. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Bob has used this in one of his uh, benedictions that he's given to us. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Now to him, that's of course to God, who is able, now let's stop right there, able, that's dunamis, okay, or really dunamai, it's the verb. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power, there's dunamis, that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. The God that you belong to and that you serve works through you. The Holy Spirit that dwells within you has given you favor and he works for you, for your good, for your purposes. Now, I don't mean he works for you in the sense that he's a lackey. I'm saying that he's working for your benefit. It's Romans 8.28. 
that God creates or makes all things work out for the good for those who love him according to, who are called according to his purpose, right? It's that kind of idea, all right? So let's think about the power that our Christ has. Now, the next one is riches. Plutus, he has all spiritual and physical wealth. Jesus owns it all. In the spiritual realm and also the physical realm, it's all his at the end of the day. In fact, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what's so shocking, is Jesus Christ who owns it all, as it says in Psalm 50, verse 10, he's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Remember that? The psalmist says, well, what are the fatted calves and all these sacrifices to the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? So he owns it all. And now in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, notice that he gives it up. Jesus does at the incarnation. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now the term rich there is plutos. It's the same term that's being used here in Revelation 5.12. So Jesus was rich, and yet for our sake he became poor. Here's the purpose statement, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So Jesus, who owned it all, who had the cattle on a thousand hills, in the incarnation he humbles himself and he becomes poor, subservient, a servant to the cross to die for us. The one who owned it all gave it all. And yet he's being extolled as the one who has all riches. Why? Because now in Revelation, he's been raised from the dead. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father, and it's time for his exaltation. His humiliation was only temporary, and he's going to have all riches. See, did I have any more to look up? Nope. Um, Ephesians 3.8. Turn your Bibles again back to Ephesians 3.8. Talking about his riches. Ephesians 3.8. Again, who is Paul? He's an apostle, so he was given the mysteries of the gospel. And it says to me, this is Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So who has all riches spiritually, physically, all riches that you and I could ever hope for? Jesus. You know, it impressed me some time ago. Remember there was a tornado outbreak in the south, and there was a lot of evangelicals that were hit by these tornadoes. The tornadoes always go through Oklahoma. Now, why don't they go through New York City or through some of the other liberal enclaves? Well, it just shows you that the Tornadoes fall on the just and the unjust as well. Well, I remember this man knew where his riches came from, and he said in his southern accent, he says, look, the Lord owns it all, and if he wants some of my stuff two states over, that's his prerogative. And I thought, you know what? That guy has his doctrine down. He knows that Christ owns it all. And brothers and sisters, I want you to think about that. Perhaps you're going through financial difficulty. Remember, you serve a Christ who has all riches, and one day, because you're with him... His riches are your riches. Okay, so comfort yourself with that, okay? Remember the good old boy said, hey, if the Lord doesn't want to give me anything or take my stuff and throw it two states over, that's his prerogative, okay? Yeah. Southern people have a good way of saying things, don't they? Now, let's see the next one that he's given praise for, of his wisdom, his wisdom, which is Sophia. Now, technically, Sophia here has to do probably with his purposeful, purposeful creation and governance What's very interesting is the Sophia, the wisdom of God, is most pronounced in salvation, and it's through Christ. So, for example, the world scoffs at Jesus Christ crucified 
for the forgiveness of sins. To them, that's foolishness. But to us who are called, it's the wisdom of God. In fact, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24. I want you to see that this wisdom of God in Christ is revealed through the gospel, but it's also going to be revealed through his governance in the eternal states. Now, again, as you're turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24, think about there is a city that recently went bankrupt. And one particular party, I won't mention who, but one particular party in our United States ran this state or the city, I should say, for 50 years, and they bankrupted it. They couldn't run a city for 50 years. That was Detroit, the headquarters of the automotive industry. In the 1950s, it had the highest per capita GDP of any city on the planet. And in 50 years, these Marxists ran it right into the ground. And yet they're the ones who are going to build utopia. But the God that we serve in Christ has such wisdom that his kingdom is going to last for how long? Eternity. (laughs) He won't bankrupt it in 50 years. No, he really has the wisdom to govern. But his wisdom is first seen in his creation. And then next, it's in what? His salvation that he made possible through the cross. And that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24. It says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, But to those who are called, here's God's elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and what? The Sophia, the wisdom of God. Christ crucified is the expression of God's wisdom. So Christ is God and he has all wisdom to create, to save, and to govern. And praise be to him, you will not ever live in a new Jerusalem that's going to go bankrupt in 50 years. Okay? Isn't that wonderful news? Now, let's go on to the next one. We have might. He's a mighty God. Now, the term might here, iscus, has to do with the ability to use force to judge or save. Now, here's how I want you to think of it. We're going to see another term in the next couple slides, kratos. I want you to think here, iscus is kind of the potential power in the ability to save and to judge that Christ has. But kratos that you're going to see later is that force in action where he actually receives dominion. That seems to be how it's used. Okay, now let me give you an example of that. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians. Oh, before I do that, you know what? I got a handout. Verse. Who had Luke 11, 20 through 22? Ah, Pat. Thank you. What we're going to see, she's going to be reading. And before you read, Pat, again, turn, everyone turn your Bibles to Luke 11, 20 through 22. Let's have everybody turn there. Because what you're going to see is, remember the Pharisees have blasphemed Christ? Because they blame Jesus. They say, hey, you're casting out the demons by the power of Beelzebul. Well, Jesus is going to say, no, the strong man is like Satan, but he's the stronger man. So that's the context here. So go ahead and read. This is Luke 11, 20 through 22. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he <clears throat> had relied and, dis- and distributes his plunder. Beautiful. Okay, so who in that 
little short parable. Who is the strong man? Well, it's obviously Satan because Jesus is plundering him by casting the demonic out. Well, who is the stronger man? That's Jesus, isn't he? So remember, we're not Eastern dualists where we have, well, we have good and bad, dark and light. They're both equal and they're always fighting. No, we are monotheists, right? We are those who believe that our God rules and he has all strength. When she just said the stronger man, that term stronger comes from iscus. So Jesus is the strongest one. He's the mightiest one. And so he is the one who is going to be able to thwart all of the schemes of the enemy. And he's going to win the victory for us. He's going to bring his rule to bear. Now, I also want you to see that through redemptive history, this strong one, this Messiah, who is the stronger man, he's revealed progressively, for, for example, throughout the book of Isaiah as the arm of Yahweh. So Noel has got some passages in Isaiah, and they begin Isaiah 40, verse 10. So listen to Isaiah 40, verse 10. And what you're going to listen for, before you start, Noel, here's the situation. Around Isaiah 40, you have this revelation that the Messiah, the suffering servant, is going to be the arm of Yahweh. And he's progressively revealed as the one who brings salvation for the people. So go ahead and read Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So he's coming to rule. And who's coming to rule? It's his arm, isn't it? His arm is coming to rule. Now, skip ahead, everyone, if you will, to Isaiah 52.10. Now you're starting to get into almost the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53. You're just a few verses away. And now the arm of Yahweh is going to be revealed again here. Isaiah 52.10. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So now we see that the arm of Yahweh is going to be revealed. Okay, now turn one more ahead to 53.12. And now his identity is linked with the suffering servant. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I'm sorry. You know what? It should have been verses 1 through 2. <laughs> I wrote down. I put my dash. It should be 53, 1 through 2. I put 12. <laughs> As you're reading did, that, I'm you, like, well, no, I can't be right. Did you just say 12, too? I did. I did say 12. I'm sorry. It's, it's verses 1 through 2. A.K.A. 1, 2? Yeah, 1 okay. through 2, exactly. <laughs> 53, also 1 known as, Yeah. 53, nice, 1 through 2. Nice to know I do as I'm told, though, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was a good passage that you just read, though. Yeah. yeah. 1 and 2. 53, yeah. 1 and 2. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Wow. Thank you. Let me just point out some things in that passage. Think about this. So he read Isaiah 40, and you see this arm of the Yahweh 
being alluded to. Then Isaiah 52, the arm of Yahweh is being alluded to. to he's going to come and reign. Then all of a sudden, 53, 1 and 2, it says, Who has believed what... I'm sorry, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? And then notice in verse 2 it says, For he, for he grew up before him like a young plant. Well, who's the he referring to? The arm of Yahweh. And he's the suffering servant, isn't he? And so this suffering servant who's going to suffer on the behalf of the people, he's still the arm of Yahweh. He's the, the mighty one the one who rules and reigns. And so that's what's being revealed to us here as we see the worship of the angels. That this is the arm of Yahweh. He's no cosmic cream puff. There is no mightier warrior on the planet or in the universe than this Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, that's wonderful news because he's bringing us into the kingdom and forever we will be secure, never having to to fret about our enemies anymore. And that's one of the great promises that we see in the prophets. One day, Jerusalem and all of the inhabitants will dwell in a city without walls. Why don't they need walls anymore? Because we have the mighty one, the arm of Yahweh ruling with us, and so we're forever secure. So brothers and sisters, that's very exciting. So notice it began with power. Now in the middle of the list, we have might, his mighty ability to save. Now let's look at the next one for the sake of time. Sorry, I'm getting long-winded here. The next one is honor, timae. It's the highest of value that's intrinsic to God. So here's what I want you to think about. To me, it has to do with value. Think of coins. They have value. Well, there's no higher value than Jesus. He's the most precious one, the one of highest value. In fact, who had the Matthew 27, 6? Here, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we need the mic. Matthew 27, 6. Now, here's all I want you to see is this term for price is the term time. It's the same term. Yeah, go ahead. Matthew 27, 6. The, pr- the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since, since it is the price of blood. The term price there is the term time. Okay, so I just want you to understand that time is often used for price or value. So the idea that Jesus is giving honor, time, is the idea that he's given the ultimate price. He's, the, he's worth the most would be the idea. You had another reference in Acts 4.34. I just want you to see how often Timae is used with regarding price or money. Yes, Acts 4.34. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of the land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Yeah, so the proceeds, is that, was that what your version said? I'm sorry, I missed it. Or did it say, yes, yeah, the and proceeds. bring the proceeds of the sales. Yep, the proceeds. So the term proceeds there is tume. That's the same term here. So again, you can see how many times this term for honor has to do with value. Jesus is the most valuable one. Now, Luann has a question or a comment. Uh, before you get there, just think about this, everyone. We'll get to the next one. Philippians 2.10. Remember, one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. One day the entire creation will give him proper proper honor that he deserves. Okay. Well, I just wanted to say real quick, taking it back to the beginning of the box in Ephesians 3, 8 to 10, when you were talking about the mystery, and you said it came through one of those three ways. And then I think about how this honor, and in the Muslim Islam, you know, with Allah Akbar, and how in that case, uh, um, Muhammad received that through divination. So it's an example of where this, you know, has all gone 
askew in right. that particular. Exactly right. Right. He's not a valid prophet, is he? He. One of the tests of being a prophet that we see in Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy, I think, later in uh, chapter 19, is there's two tests for a prophet. One is that they say something that doesn't come true. They're to be rejected. Uh, in fact, they're to be stoned. But second, if they say something that comes true, but they lead people away from the doctrines of Yahweh, well, then they're also to be rejected. Well, certainly, Muhammad really did both. What he said didn't come true. And the other thing that he did is he taught people doctrines that led people away from Christ. So he's definitely a false prophet. And uh, he doesn't measure up, does he? So, yeah, his word should be rejected. Thank you. Very good. Yep. He's stealing honor, Timae, from Christ. Amen. Yep. Anybody else on that? Now, we got a couple more to get through here. So, Jesus is the one who has all honor given to him, but also all glory. Now, the term glory here, doxa, is where we get our term, you know, for doxology, a word of glory. It really has to do with the weightiness and the majesty of God. And the idea is that God should be viewed as weighty. Now, what does weightiness mean? Well, if the President of the United States came in, um, well, it's just, just any President of the United States. We'll just leave it at that. Okay? Well, I'll just leave it at that. Um, there's a certain weightiness to the position of being President, correct? There's a weightiness to that position. And so there's a little bit of a, wow, the President's here or the, a senator, or what have you. Well, Jesus has all weightiness because he's the supreme leader. That's the idea that we see. Now, one thing I want to point out is in John 1.14, we see the glory of God revealed even in the incarnation. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. It says, The glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now, the only begotten, monogenes, means he's the unique son doesn't mean that he was born, that he wasn't God and then he became God, but he's the unique son, the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Bob pointed out in a message once that this reference to grace and truth is a reference back to Exodus 33 where Yahweh was full of grace and truth. And so Jesus has all grace and truth. Why? Because he's Yahweh. And he is the very radiance of the glory of God. And so one day, again, every knee will bow and every tongue confess and give him the proper weightiness that he deserves. Now, another thing I want you to see here, turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 16 through 17. I want you to see that this idea of glory has to do with this majesty that comes from the presence of Christ and of God. And it's a majesty that one day we will behold when we're in glory with him. Notice in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 17, remember Peter's arguing here with the false teachers. He says, For we, we the apostles, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me stop there. Notice the term coming. The term coming there has to be a reference to the parousia. That's what the term. That means it's the second coming that he's referring to. The term parousia is never used with reference to the first coming. So the, the, the debate in Second Peter is, well, the false teachers are saying Jesus isn't coming, you can live any way you want. Well, the apostles are saying, no, that's not true. Now, what's the evidence? He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, he says, for when he received honor and glory, doxa, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him 
by the majestic glory, that's the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, when you read that account in the Gospels, like in Mark chapter 9, it says Jesus was transfigured before them. The term is literally metamorpho. He had a metamorphosis. And so literally Jesus was transfigured and so that he shone some of his glory and his majesty, his weightiness. And it must have been awe-inspiring. And that is something that you and I will revel in all the days of our life in the kingdom. We are going to be glorified with him. And there's going to be majesty and beauty that you've never seen before. And we see that happen even on the Mount of Transfiguration. By the way, the point of that whole passage is, notice, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's a reference to what? Psalm chapter 2. What's Psalm chapter 2 about? The Messiah reigning over the earth. Well, they had that given to them by the Father. So if Jesus has to reign over the earth, that means he has to come back again. And so what Peter is saying is, of course the false teachers are wrong. Jesus is going to come back again. We had our interpretation validated by the Heavenly Father as he revealed Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what he's saying. Okay, so this glorious one will be glorified fully in his kingdom. Now, the last one is blessing. Eulogia, he's the source of all favor and happiness. Now, remember, as we say that, that doesn't mean that you and I are happy because we have an emotional happiness, but it's a happiness that will one day last unto eternity. In other words, it's not dependent upon our feelings. It's dependent upon the fact that the favor of God is upon us. So right now, no matter how bad things are, you're blessed by God. Why? Because his favor rests upon you. But one day you will be glorified in your resurrected body. You will always be happy. And so that's how the blessing has to do with both God's favor and your happiness. Now, a lot of times you and I are not happy because life is difficult, but we still have joy and we still are blessed because we have the favor of God. But all of these things belong to Christ. So think about, uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis 12 too. Genesis 12 too, the great promise that God made to Israel and to the nations. Genesis 12 too, he says, and I will make you a great nation, Abraham, and I will what? Bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. To what? To all the nations. Now, later, I'll just keep going here. Isaiah 44, 3. The Lord says that he is going to pour out water on the thirsty land and streams in the dry ground. He says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, the reason I labor that is turn your Bibles one more time to Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. I want you to see where our blessing stems from. Paul here is laboring that salvation's by faith alone. Romans 4, 5 through 6. Paul says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. That blessing has to do with God's favor. And God's favor comes upon a man, Paul says, apart from works, and it's merely credited by God. 
Remember Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How do any of us have the favor of God placed upon us? Simply by his grace and his mercy. There's nothing that we can do. It's by faith, not by works. So one day, dear brothers and sisters, you and I will be blessed forever. In the fullest sense, we'll know that God's favor was upon us because no longer will we be persecuted because this Christ is going to reign and then you and I will really be happy. Ephesians 1.3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right now, we are blessed in the heavenly realm, but one day, we are going to be there. That will be actualized. Positionally, that's true now, but one day we're going to experience it. So right now, what do we do? We live by faith, by the promises of God. Okay, well, you know what? I've got more to get into, but we're out of time. Um, next time, what I want to do is I'll finish up these, these verses here. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out the different views about the different tribulation uh, and wrath type of views, also the different maybe even millennial views. And so if anyone has any questions about that, as we get into Revelation 6, we want to be able to think about when does the wrath of God come because it will keep us from making errors and other places of Scripture. So if anybody has any questions next week about when does wrath begin, um, what are the different positions on the rapture or the uh, millennial kingdom, those types of things, bring those questions or comments with you. We'll be addressing those things. We'll also finish up these verses. Very interesting. Uh, We have another term that we're going to look at, which is the strength of Christ, his kratos. So remember, we already saw his power and his might be extolled. Well, think of his power and his might, his iskus, as the potential power. But kratos is the strength and the power in action. And that's the final adoration or word of praise that the angels give prior to the wrath of God breaking out in Revelation 6. His kratos. All this power that he has becomes actualized and he brings his kingdom through his power. So with that, let me just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the great truths of your scripture that your son will one day be glorified and he'll be given weightiness that he justly deserves forever. Heavenly Father, we praise you and give you thanks now. We long for the day that we'll be around your throne worshiping you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that my brothers and sisters would be, would be given stamina for these difficult days that they'd remember where their true riches are, that one day their blessing will really come, that your favor will be manifested in their being happy and joyful endlessly in the glorious kingdom to come. I pray, Lord, that they would dwell upon these things, the things above, not things upon the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.